It's always a pleasure to read the Bible together. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Zibar. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Zibar? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Zibar answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Zibar answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Oh, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Zibar, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Zibar had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Zibar said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Zibar's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. We'll jump to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, it's the wrong page number. Anyone got the page number? I've got the wrong colour Bible. 827. 827. There we go. Thanks, Scott. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And 
God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Now, before we actually look at this passage, um, can I just make reference to a couple of things actually that you that we just prayed about? Um, when we pray for persecuted Christians in other countries, we need, I think, to remember that uh, uh, quite often when we correspond with uh, Christians who are in prison or are being persecuted, that the one th thing they want is a Bible. One actually man wrote and said, please don't pray that the persecution will stop, but please pray that Christians who can afford it will send us a Bible. And... Uh, we mentioned China in our prayers. 50 million Christians in China are still waiting for a Bible. 50 million. And hundreds upon hundreds of Chinese are being converted every day. So what a challenge, is it not? We who have a Bible on every shelf in our homes and there are 50 million Christians in China who don't have one at all. The other thing too is regard with that SRE and the ethics course, can I encourage you to knock on the door of your local MP because the fundamental problem with what has happened is not at necessarily a Christians versus non-Christians approach to things, but it's a legal issue in that what the, uh, what the government has done is contrary to what the Education Act of 1990 has stated has to happen with regards to SRE. It is the spirit of the Act and the regulations that accompany that Act that state that SRE is a vital component in the education of the children of New South Wales and therefore nothing must jeopardise the uh, possibility of a child attending SRE. And I think that's important, isn't it? That, that as well as the other issue of, uh, of the danger it is to our Christian heritage, that uh, because it's now the fact that SRE is the only time that thousands of our young children hear the Bible and are encouraged to think about it. And so it's important that we keep our our uh, legislators, it's important that we keep our, our government members uh, to the, their noses to, to the wheel in terms of their role. I cannot see how the previous Premier had the right or the power 
to simply sign a document to allow this ethics course to happen the way that it has. Uh, the the, and unfortunately too, the leader of the Liberal Party in New South Wales also supports it. So a change of government would not necessarily mean that there would be a change in that attitude. But I just raise that with you, that it's most important that we uh, argue for right use of our legislation in New South Wales, as well as the other issue. Yeah. Anyway, I encourage you to think and pray about that, that that, that, that is an important aspect of, of, of what we should be on about and concerned about. Okay, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if we may. And this might be the shortest sermon that you've ever had, may. Notice I use the word may. Um, can, uh, in terms of um, what was the link between the two readings that we had? Why did I choose 2 Samuel chapter 9 as an Old Testament reading in connection with Ephesians 2? Scott's not allowed to answer the question because he's already heard what I've said. Can anybody see any connection between the two? Just have a look at them. It's a great story, the story of Mephibosheth, isn't it? Um, and it's interesting that he lived in a place called Lodabar, which means nowhere. Nothing. He lived in a land called nothing. And the Beatles wrote a song, if you remember, about the nowhere man living in nowhere land, making plans for nobody. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Was the Beatles song. And the, I take it they picked that up. So, so can anybody see a connection? This is an open question. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, but you remember what David said. Who, who is there of the house of Saul? That's Jonathan as well. No, who is there of the house of Saul that I can show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So why was David kind to Mephibosheth? For, did Mephibosheth deserve it? No. He was kind to Mephibosheth for the sake of another, right, of the agreement that David and Jonathan made while Jonathan was still alive. It's a great little story, isn't it, about what grace is all about. Mephibosheth, no use at all. Not only did he live in nowhere land, he was taken from there, but he was still crippled in both his feet. And David took him in and he sat with David's sons at the table for the rest of his life. So there you are. Do I pray or do I say a little bit more? Well, you know me well, some of you, and the second is the better thing to do. Let's just uh, think, and I hope that, uh, that I'm not going to be saying anything really new, but it's great to be reminded, isn't it, of just the essence of the gospel so that we can be confident about the gospel 
we can be confident about the God of the gospel and so approach that whole thing about what it means to become a Christian and be a Christian from a God-centred point of view. Because we're like Mephibosheth, see, in terms of we cannot do anything. So let's very quickly, uh, that's, the, that's the sermon, but I just want to say one or two things more. I think I've got time. Um, and so let's, let's work it through. Why is grace so important? Uh, let me, uh, because twice over, don't we, in verse, the end of verse 5, you read, it is by grace you have been saved. So we've got to be asked the question, saved from and saved for. What are we saved from? What are we saved for? That's always that, that, that idea. Those two questions with regard to saved. Saved from and saved for. It is by grace you've been saved. Then he says the same thing again in verse 8, doesn't he? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice we're not saved by faith. Notice that? We're not saved by faith. Faith is me putting my trust in God. So that's something that I do. God enables me to do it, but it's something I do. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, God's free, unmerited favour. We're saved out of true faith. Faith is the empty hand that we hold out for God to fill with his grace and mercy. Is that clear, that distinction? Because I think it's the most important one. All right. So just let's work through this passage in terms of that. The authorised version and the early English versions used to use the word walk in the letter to Ephesians. Our NIV translated as live. But um, because Watchman Nee, a great Chinese evangelist and writer, once wrote a little commentary on the book of Ephesians and he simply called it Sit, Walk, Stand. Uh, uh, because that encapsulated uh, the, the th three main positions that we do or may enjoy in our relationship with God. And um, uh, so, so I've used those words there in the outline. The first thing we've got to realise, if we're really going to appreciate graces, though, is we've got to realise our utter inability to do or be anything that pleases God under our own steam. Okay, that's the first thing we've got to do. And why is that? Notice in verse 1, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us also lived. You ever picked up the difference there? You in verse 1, and then us in verse 3. And the you in, over in verses 11 to 13 is clearly the Gentiles. The us are the Jews. Because the early church, didn't it, was composed of Jewish people who had been converted and non-Jewish people who had been converted. And that was the great struggle in the early church for the Jew and the Gentile to be able to sit together and have fellowship together because before they were converted 
if uh, the shadow of a Gentile crossed the path of a Jew, the Jew would go home and, and, and have a bath because he was unclean, because just the shadow of the Gentile had passed over him. Jesus said, didn't he, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans or the Gentiles. So there's this great sort of chasm between the Jew and the Gentile in Bible times. But here Paul is saying that the Ephesian church consisted of you, that is the Gentiles, and us, who are the Jews, you see. And if a Jew and a Gentile can sit down together, there's no reason why anybody can't do it. And so that has, says a lot about the necessity and the importance of us together, being the people of God and fellowshipping together regardless of uh, our idiosyncrasies and, our, and our, the funny bits of our character. If a Jew and a Gentile can do it, anybody can do it, is the teaching uh, that's in the New Testament. So what does it mean to walk without Christ? Well, in verse 1 he talks about our condition, our state by nature. And notice the words he uses. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Right? And David says... That's our condition from the womb. It's not a case of becoming de dead at some stage in our life. We're dead from the womb. He's using it in that metaphorical sense, of course. Okay. And uh, you remember the story in Genesis chapter 2, don't you, as to what dead means. Because over in... Um, over in verse 12, you see, he says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. So being dead in transgressions equals being separated from Christ. What happened in the Garden of Eden? What did Adam and do? do? What, did, what did Adam and Eve do in the garden every day after God created them and put them in the garden? They walked and talked with God. They were in fellowship with him. Then they disobeyed. What was the first thing they tried to do after they disobeyed? They tried to hide from God. That fellowship had been broken. They were separated from God. Isaiah says, your sins have separated you from God. That's what the word dead there means, doesn't it? Dead means to be separated from God. The Bible uses a couple of other words, doesn't it? Uh, the parable of the uh, prodigal son. The father says, this my son was dead and now alive he was, lost and is now found. And the Bible also talks about us being blind to the things of God. So what can a person who is dead, lost and blind do? Much? Nothing. Okay? If we're separate from Christ, there is nothing that we can do of our own bat to be in fellowship with God. So people have to know that before they can appreciate grace. We are separated from Christ. We are, se we, are, uh, we, are not we are walking without Christ because we are born sinners. We are born separate from Christ. 
because it's our sinful nature where, that the devil uses for, uh, to keep us away from Christ. So that's the first thing. And in verses 2 to 3, he spells that out because we are separated, not only because of our condition, that is, we are born sinners, but because of our conduct. We, uh, we have the pressures of the world around us uh, to conform to those pressures rather than to follow Christ. We also have the pressure from within us, our sinful nature, wars with us uh, and uh, it wants to hold us captive so we were dead but we also followed uh, the uh, things that were not pleasing to God and I just mentioned a while ago didn't about who it is the problem that the Gentiles had when they were actually being confronted with the gospel was the paganism that they had grown up amongst, were idolatry, worship and all the rest of it. The problem with the Jew was not necessarily paganism, because they were God's people, weren't they? But the problem with the Jew was what we call legalism, because the Jew would say, yes, we are, you are God's child by faith, but that's only half the story. To be a true blue Christian the Jewish Christians in the New Testament were saying you had, you had to have faith in God but you also had to keep all the law of the Old Testament. That's why Paul mentioned circumcision there. Circumcision was just a legal requirement in order to become God's people. Can you become a God's child by obeying God's laws? Answer? No. The law condemns, doesn't save. So that distinction, I think, is important there. That uh, the Gentile was separate from, from, um, from God because of his paganism. The Jew was actually separated from God because of his legalism, thinking that, uh, that, that, that he was okay if he followed God's law. But that meant following all of God's laws, didn't it? Because if you, if, you, if you don't follow them all, you don't follow them at all. And what must God do because of man's uh, condition and his conduct? Well, um, we read that uh, God must actually exercise his wrath against sin, doesn't he? That, that God must punish sin. He is a righteous God. He will always do what is right. And part of that means punishing sin. And of course the punishment of sin is being separated from, from or walking without Christ. The problem is if we keep on doing that till the day we die, then we, walk, then we die without Christ. And we live eternity without Christ, which is what the Bible calls hell. So God must display his, his justice and that means wrath. But of course, and now comes uh, the bit about where grace enters the picture because uh, of what Jesus has done in living a perfectly obedient life under God, didn't he? He was without sin. He died, therefore not as a punishment for his own sin, which meant he could die for the sin of others. He died, God raised him from the dead as a proof 
that uh, what Christ died for, he accomplished. And so that means that in verses 4 to 9, we have Paul saying in verse 4, he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God is rich in mercy. So notice he's used the two words, hasn't he? Grace, by grace you have been saved. But how have you been saved? Because God is rich in mercy. What's the difference? There must be a difference, I think, for Paul to use the same uh, the different words. Can I suggest the difference is? Grace is God giving me what I do not deserve. That's the story of Mephibosheth, see? Mephibosheth didn't deserve, did he, David's kindness, but God, David showed him kindness. So grace is God giving me what I do not deserve, forgiveness, restoration to fellowship with him and all that kind of stuff. Is that, is that clear? Mercy, on the other hand, is God not giving me what I do deserve. Okay? Two separate things. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. What do I deserve because of my condition and my conduct? What do I deserve? To be uh, uh, separate from Christ. To be separated from Christ. That's what I deserve. But God, because he's rich in mercy, uh, pro pro provides the way for me not to be separated from Christ, but to be seated with Christ. Notice the phrase he uses there in verse 4 to 9. You were dead in your sins, you did walk without Christ, but now because God is rich in mercy, you are seated with Christ. Where is Christ? Where is Christ now? In heaven. Where are we now? If we're seated with Christ, where are we? In heaven. So if somebody asks you the question, where will you go when you die? I hope you won't say, I hope to go to heaven. Why? Because you're already there. It's not presumption to say, I will be with Christ. That's not presumption. It's not presumption to say, I will be in heaven. It's simply stating the fact because Christ died, rose again from the dead, in Christ's death, he died my death, didn't he? He died your death, did he not? As, a, as punishment for sin. God raised him from the dead, so God raised us up, us up with Christ. So when di Christ died and raised again, we died and rose again. Where is Christ now in heaven? Where are we right now? Really? We're in heaven. That okay? So it's very important for us to, to actually believe that. So, um, because one of the problems uh, about people who are my age, you see, is that many, many people believe that good people go to heaven. What do you hear in the eulogies when a, when a person dies. What is the eulogy you're on about? Saying what a good 
bloke or woman the person who has died was. Isn't that the case? He was kind, he helped 50 old ladies across the street, he, he sort of gave to charity, he did this and he did that and he did the other thing. Why is that said? Because people believe that if you're good, you'll get there, don't they? And I think many people in our community still believe that. But that is not the gospel. And it makes it difficult for people to hear the gospel if they're convinced about that. We were dead. And a dead person is not much use and can't do very much. You were dead. In Christ you have been made alive. God has raised you and seated and has seated us with Christ. And so that is the evidence in verses 8 and 9 of his grace. Because all the verbs you notice in that passage in 4 to 9 are in the past and God is the one who does every one of them. By grace you have been saved, God did this, God did that, God did the other thing. So why are we Christians? Not because I believe, not because I have repented, they're all what I do because God has enabled me to turn to him. It is by grace I have been saved. Is that right? And grace means God giving me what I do not deserve. Clear enough? Because I, th I think that is fundamental and the devil will want people not to believe that. Okay? He will work in people and work at people so that they are man-centred in their thinking about what it means to be right with God rather than God-centred in, in those terms. And so that, 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 that's important because notice at the end of verse uh, 8, Paul says, and it is not of yourselves. What isn't? The whole piece, the whole, the whole thing. Being saved by grace means that our salvation is not of ourselves. Faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. That's why we pray, don't we? Before we talk to people about the gospel, we talk to God about the people, don't we? And that's why we do it, because it's God in the end who can shine his light. And it's only God who gives life to people. So, that, so that's important. It's like, uh, you know those uh, little walk uh, bridges made of rope and so on across deep ravines? You, you've seen pictures of those where only it's, there's enough room for one person to go across and it's very deep and so it tends to sway a bit? Well, a flea and an elephant once walked across one of those bridges together. And they, when they got to the other side, the flea looked up at the elephant and said, boy, didn't we make sure that bridge rocked. How much did the flea contribute to the rocking of the bridge compared to the elephant? That's like it is. Okay? That's like it is. We are saved by grace and not of ourselves, which leaves us to the fact that um, if, we're if we're saved from separation from God, what are we saved for? 
And the answer in verse 10 is, we are saved for good works, isn't it? Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see the emphasis again in verse 10? Um, whose workmanship are we? God's. So God has worked to make us who we are, created. Who has created us? God has created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So it's God from beginning to end, isn't it? In terms of the fact that it is God alone who can save us from being separated from Christ and going to hell. And it is God who actually enables us then to do good works. Are we saved by good works? No, we are saved for good works. And what are good works? They are works which God wants us to, to do. What's the greatest work God wants us to do? What's the greatest work that God wants us to do? Share the gospel, isn't it? Because, the, because evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I like that definition of evangelism. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's the greatest work we can do, isn't it? But to be God's people, to be God's pe people in our church community, God's people in the wider community, God's people in our homes, God's people uh, right across the board. So, uh, so, uh, so if it's God who does it all, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? God does. Why are you a Christian husband? So that you will glorify God. A Christian wife? So that you will glorify God. Christian uh, daughter, son? Same thing, isn't it? In our community, we're here. So that as we speak with people, they will be attracted to him. And God, and Jesus said, didn't he? If I am lifted up before the world, I will draw all men to myself. Let's believe that promise. And let's be concerned to really know what it means to be saved from walking without Christ. We're saved from that so that we're seated with Christ. And then lastly, we actually are saved um, because we want to actually walk in Christ. So let me ask the question, are we modern day Mephibosheths? Answer, I hope you can say yes. God looked upon me, the dead dog was that, that I was, and he gave me life. He enabled me to turn in repentance and faith, and I live now for Christ and Christ alone. There's that lovely story in the Old Testament too about the man called Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 and in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a great story because it says that Enoch was converted after the birth of his son and he lived after that for about 300 years. But he lived walking with God. And all it says about 
Enoch was. Uh, uh, God, uh, sorry, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him. Wouldn't that be a glorious epitaph? Wouldn't it? Baxter walked with God, then he was no more because God took him. May that be your confidence as we live out our role in the world today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in the fact that you are God who is rich in mercy. You are God of all grace that you have condescended to come in the person of Jesus amongst us in this fallen, sin-soaked world. We thank you that in his death and resurrection he has uh, given proof of your mercy, your grace and your love and your power and that you have uh, uh, enabled us to hear to believe and to repent and to change that we might more and more be the kind of people that you want us to be. Help us to be aware of the good works that you have created for us. Help us to respond to you and to your wonderful grace so that in Christ we might be more and more given to submitting to your will and not ours. That we might be concerned to wash other people's feet and show them love and kindness for Christ's sake. And in humility and sacrifice, let us be concerned to want to be like Jesus, totally given to being to, to your will so that in the end as we walk through this world we will be confident that uh, we will walk with you forever. We ask that you would be gracious to us, merciful to us, that you would enable us to be your people in this world and we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.